Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey everyone, welcome to the 122nd edition of DF Direct Weekly, which 122 shows on is still our weekly show where we discuss the latest gaming and technology news. Yeah, lots to discuss this week, lots of PlayStation stuff going on, lots of leaks, lots of juicy stuff. Joining me to discuss it, first of all, Oliver McKenzie, hello. Hey Rich, how's it going? Always a pleasure. <laughs> it's fantastic to have you here and of course john linneman yes i am here as well and i'm glad to see oliver back in his gamecube there it's awesome <laughs> always a pleasure to have you on the show <laughs> fantastic stuff yes for those wondering alex is uh busy with his deep dive into ratchet and clank which we're hoping to get up by the time you see this uh but let's move on to our first news topic Okay, so recently uh, leaks emerged revealing a potential specification for Sony's upcoming PlayStation 5 Pro, completely unconfirmed, no idea if this is actually happening. However, the source is Tom Henderson, who has correctly predicted uh, the Q Project Q handheld. So, you know, he's got uh, he's got the credentials. Um, he's also predicted a PlayStation 5 with a detachable Blu-ray drive. So, yeah, basically, if that detachable Blu-ray drive comes along, we should be expecting that the Pro will come along. Um, I'm going to go to you first of all, John. But before we do, um, there's this question from uh, supporter Gatti, and it kind of accurately represents... Um, some of the uh, discussions we've been having about the whole concept of a pro console for this generation. And the question is, uh, in the most recent PlayStation showcase, uh, Jim Ryan said, and I quote, uh, developers are just scratching the surface of what's possible with the gaming experiences that they create. I understand it's mostly a marketing phrase, but saying that in the third year of PS5's life cycle, does it not paint the whole idea of PS5 Pro even more confusing? Do you think it will be a product in search of a problem to solve, assuming the problem is not 8K gaming? What do you reckon? This is kind of a weird thing, and I'm very curious as to the purpose of a product like this. Because we're kind of in that state where the PS5 itself just hasn't really... It kind of feels like we're still starting this generation, right? Like, we've talked about this before, where we've just, we're have just we just starting to see some games take advantage of it. Although we did see some earlier on, and then it kind of went back to cross-gen. Uh, and I feel like, unlike last time with the PS4 Pro, which did have that... Uh, purpose of targeting 4k displays which were becoming more widespread 8k is not the problem to solve as 8k displays have not become commonplace and i think they're mostly undesirable still i would say like they're interesting but it basically means everything will be upscaled which you don't necessarily want right so i think this time the only way they could really sell it is to take more of a uh an iterative approach kind of tapping further down the uh, the cell phone road, I suppose, where it's like, this is just a more powerful box. They already promised 4K and, well, technically they promised 8K with the PS5, right? Though they did not deliver on that. 
so this is basically just like, well, you know, here's an upgrade. Like you'd upgrade your phone. Here's a more powerful machine. It's like upgrading a GPU. I think with the release of all these other products in different categories, like graphics cards and phones, people become somewhat more accustomed to just upgrading their hardware, you know? And I feel like if this comes out in late 2024, that will have been four years since the launch of PlayStation five, which is still a decent amount of time between upgrades. And that would actually make, if this happens, it would still have last, uh, there'd be a larger gap between PS five and PS five pro than there was between PS four and PS four pro. Right. That was three years. Cause that was 2016. So I think it's a fair ask. It's just, I'm, I'm really, it's, it's such a, you're, you're struggling, I'm struggling with it because it just doesn't seem that compelling to me. Right. Well, we've got an interesting question here from supporter Dirk Hodderin. Hear me out. I think Remnant 2 just made the strongest case for a PS5 Pro yet. With its uncapped performance mode going as low as 720p, not even the best implementation of DLSS can prevent that from looking bad on increasingly large 4K TV screens. If this is indicative of the kind of performance cost Nanite is likely to command, then I fear by the end of the generation, base PlayStation 5 is going to be running games at resolutions that would make the PS3 blush. Uh, thoughts on that one, Oliver? I think, well, before you come in on that one, uh, Unreal Engine 5 is basically a work in progress. It's getting better and better all the time. And um, the Unreal Engine 5 games that we would have, uh, that we're seeing now would have been developed on a much older version. I'm not entirely sure that you can set your store based on Remnant 2. But what do you what do you reckon about this one, Oliver? Well, I think the first thing to get out of the way is that Remnant 2 indeed, uh, at least as, as we counted, it does go down to 720p class resolutions in its higher performance modes. But the actual experience on a real display is not like <laughs> not like 720p. It's not, closer to 1440p, yeah. right, uh, based on our coverage. So it is upsampling very effectively. You do get more breakup in motion, but uh, to some degree that's masked by the motion blur. So it's really much more like 1440p. And to me, at least, from a normal viewing distance, 1440p still looks very good in a 4K set or can look very good, at least if it's quite temporally stable, I think. Um, I do think it probably does indicate that UE5, at least in this state, is very heavy, especially when you start pouring in Nanite and VSMs and all that stuff. Uh, especially if you look at the game on PC, it really does collapse a little bit when you hit those higher shadow settings. So, uh, right. I mean, it would definitely help, but also developers are going to be targeting the PlayStation 5 as the most common platform and also the Series S as a baseline kind of platform. So I don't think the existence of like, let's say 10 million PS5 Pros or 15 million by the end of the generation really does that much. I think UE5 needs to scale to those lower power platforms regardless of what the Pro is doing, right? Even if it is really good. Actually, Oliver, that's a really good point. And this is in the fact that there is actually a use case for this product more than I had considered. And it's the fact that by still needing to target these lower end platforms, especially with the PS5 as a base and the PlayStation side, one can assume that they will not be able to take full advantage in the way that you would think for a PS5 Pro in terms of building games just for that spec. Instead, that would just allow them to basically solve these image quality problems and performance problems for Unreal Engine 5 and other more demanding technologies in the way. So it does kind of, it kind of ensures that 
So right now we're seeing the switch between 60 to 30. 30 frames per second has become a standard again, somewhat, I would say. It hasn't truly reached that point. We're still seeing performance modes, but I feel like 30 is becoming more common, just as we kind of suspected earlier on. Whereas I think with the upgrades we're seeing on these PS5 Pro specs, this could essentially alleviate that problem and allow it to reach 60 frames per second more easily and maybe even 120 frames per second. So as these Unreal Engine 5 games begin to roll out with all these new features, because they need to target those older machines, it makes it a lot more feasible to just take what they've built already and just increase the frame rate. Maybe some slight boost to fidelity, but not enough to bring the frame rate down. So this might be our ticket to more 60 frames per second UE5 games. Although, you know, with the most talented developers, I would still expect uh, 60 FPS anyways. Like, I don't know what the coalition has in store, but I would imagine that their game will, in fact, target 60 frames per second and likely feature all of these UE5 bells and whistles. Well, on Xbox, of course, not on PlayStation, but you know what I mean. So, but I think a lot of developers are going to struggle with getting really performant results out of UE5 especially Mm -hmm. in these first couple of years. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, let's take a look at uh, Tom Henderson's actual report on his uh, Key to Gaming website. Um, Yeah, there's actually sort of like only one or two lines of actual detail about the products. (laughs) There is a lot of of padding surrounding it. Um, uh, Yes, um, let's talk about the details here. He's talking about 30 WGPs and... 18,000 megatransfers per second memory. So yeah, that basically translates into uh, more commonly understood parlance as um, 60 compute units versus the 36 that are currently in the PlayStation 5. Um, 18 gigabits per second memory. I think the PlayStation 5's current memory speed, yep, 14 gigabits Mm -hmm. per second. Um, So yes, that's quite interesting. Lots of questions about that. First of all, you know, going from um, uh, 36 to um, 60 uh, compute units, that is a tangible bump. The question is whether we're going to get all of those 60 compute units in the final shipping product. Um, Because, well, you know, to be honest, it's um, a case where certain certain chips are defective on the production line and to make those chips viable they deactivate parts of the gpu and if you're going to do that you've got to do it on all the chips of the production line so possibly it could be lower than 30 uh, than 60 compute units but possibly not we just don't know at the moment um we don't know the architecture is it rdna2 is it rdna3 is it some sort of weird hybrid like we saw with the playstation 4 pro uh, which had a lot of vega uh architectural uh, features sort of backported to earlier versions of GCN and then put into this this chip. Uh, we don't know anything about the, the CPU side of things, which brings up an, another interesting question from supporter, let me check this out, Struggling Shader. From what I've seen, the PS5 Pro leak talks about only GPU and memory. But from my perspective, the main bottleneck we're seeing is CPU. What is the best way to increase CPU performance without breaking compatibility? Only clocks, or could we have some 3D-style V-cache added to the Zen 2 cluster? Um, So we're talking about things that are actually plausible for a console here. Um, If we look at what the Pro did, it basically just kept the existing CPU and upclocked it uh, Mm -hmm. by about 30%. 
Possibly the same thing could be happening here. However, one thing that we uh, have seen, I mean, when I actually spoke to Mark Cerny about PS4 Pro, he was talking about they kept to the Jaguar cores in PS4 Pro for compatibility purposes, but they seem to have overcome any compatibility issues when they moved to um, Zen 2 for PS5. So conservatively speaking, I would expect them to stick with Zen 2, but increase the clock speeds. However, possibly there is the option to move to Zen 4 or even a more later architecture. It all depends really on uh, on compatibility and uh, die area uh, specifically. Um, the thing that sort of, well, first of all, I do think that these specs are kind of plausible. And there's another guy on Twitter, a, a known leaker of AMD uh, hardware specifications, uh, Kepler underscore L2, says it's real, says the chip is codenamed Viola and has basically corroborated uh, Tom Henderson's report. He says it's the only real PlayStation 5 Pro uh, report out there at the moment. Um, what's sort of bothering me a little bit about this 60 compute unit situation is that um, if you look at compatibility, Sony has taken a hardware-driven approach. So, you know, PS4 to PS4 Pro, they doubled the GPU size, um, but it enabled them to have perfect compatibility with PlayStation 4. PlayStation 4 Pro to PlayStation 5, they kept the same amount of compute units, right? But obviously the compute unit itself was overhauled, mm -hmm. massive clock speed boosts. To do the same trick on a PS5 Pro, to have this sort of symmetrical hardware, um, you'd be looking at an ATCU part, which would be kind of nuts. Mm -hmm. And if we're reporting mm -hmm. 60 compute units in this chip, that would mean like 25% of them are being disabled, which doesn't make sense. So maybe Sony has moved on from this concept of pure hardware compatibility. Maybe there's something new that, that's going on here. Um, yeah, the memory kind of makes sense. You'd want more memory bandwidth for a faster GPU. I'm not sure there's going to be more memory as such, because, you know, what do you need it for? The original PlayStation 5 is already targeting 4K textures, right? Uh, so it's just going to be extra brute force. Um, other stuff that's happening in the... Um, well, well, Rich, what about uh, 8K they keep talking about? <laughs> I mean... Well, um, let's, let's, as I said, let's look at the uh, the key to gaming um, things that they're talking about here. Uh, they're talking about uh, improved and consistent frames uh, FPS at 4K resolution, which kind of goes without saying, right? Um, and they're talking about a new performance mode for, <laughs> for 8K resolution, when really I think we'd all be very happy with an actual performance mode for 4K resolution. Right. right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> one that one that actually works. Um, how they're going to do this performance mode, who knows? Um, and uh, accelerated ray tracing, which may or may not be part of um, clock speed boosts. We don't know the clock speeds. That's of crucial importance. Um, it may be through architectural advancements. It may be that, um, you know, Mark Cerny's come up with his own ray tracing hardware design uh, that's entirely bespoke for consoles, but is a great fit for consoles, might not end up in the uh, in the PC space. There's been a lot of uh, stuff that's happened in PlayStation consoles. So checkerboarding hardware, for example, uh, that never made its way into uh, into the PC space because it kind of wasn't needed. One interesting thing I just thought about was, uh, so again, with 8K, right? 
Do you recall when the PS4 Pro launched, they updated the firmware on the base PS4 to finally allow HDR support on that system as well? So I'm wondering if perhaps we'll finally get like 8K output, at least as an option on the regular PS5, as the box promised. You know, obviously, uh, you know, native 8K rendering, 8K rendering in general would be ridiculous and not, I don't think it's that feasible for most games, but I mean, they could have an 8K upscale option, right? Like where it just sends yeah. an 8K signal to your display. But that that then it just comes down to who do you where do you want the processing of the image to happen the PS5 or your TV right? Well, this week uh, it was announced that 40 million PlayStation 5s have now sold right all of them every single box all 40 million of those boxes have got 8K on them. Yep. And three years on, nothing. There's there's no 8K support for the PlayStation 5 at all. <laughs> so maybe at some point it will be enabled right. But um, yeah, that that one is kind of baffling to me. Um, Yeah, it's just really, really weird, right? Because um, the PlayStation 4 Pro had a reason to exist, right? It had several reasons. First of all, in theory, it it was a much better fit for PlayStation VR um, than the base box, right? So if PlayStation VR had taken off in a significant manner, I think we could have seen more impressive VR support for PSVR 2. Secondly, it was, you know, it did a fairly creditable job of um of of delivering a 4k experience right you know horizon god of war it's not ideal but it it looks decent on a 4k display right 8k isn't a good reason good enough reason for for a ps5 pro you you can't sell it so i think it is ultimately going to be about performance but oliver i think you'd agree that there are there is going to be a subset of the audience out there who will just want the fastest PlayStation oh, yeah. possible, right? Well, I'm very much just... part of that audience for sure. You know? <laughs> a PlayStation 5 that's roughly twice as fast in line with the PS4 Pro kind of style upgrade. I'm definitely interested in that personally, although maybe that's a you know relatively small component of the market. I think that there are definitely, I think, three key problems that face the PS5 Pro in terms of marketing, because if you're looking at uh, targeting higher resolutions, the PS5 is already targeting 4K displays and does a reasonably credible job of, of doing that. You know, you can do a better job, certainly, but I don't know how much of a back-of-the-box marketing feature that is. You know, do you target higher frame rates? Well, you know, you might have a two-times boost in GP performance, but you don't have a two-times boost in CP performance by, you know, all likelihood. It's going to be a probably a clock bump. That's where the majority of the performance gain will probably come from, I think. And then do you enhance ray tracing? Well, a lot of... You know, games are built around a certain set of RT features, and then, you know, if you add some more in there, maybe that's not that big of an impact. So it does seem like a box with more power that's sort of up to the, the developer to figure out what they're going to do with it, whereas the PS4 Pro was very specifically, buy this box if you want to play this on a 4K TV. And that was very effective marketing, and I think it conveyed the value of the product, and people purchased it, and it did do a decent job of addressing 4K displays. And the whole 8K thing is a little bit of a, you know, pie in the sky thing because 8K is, it's so hard to perceive the difference, at least from what I've seen in demos from 8K to 4K at normal viewing distances. You know, the visual acuity of the human eye is not, <laughs> is not that yeah, good. I mean, I've got I an 8K TV, so yeah. I can, I can tell you how it looks. It just looks like really good anti-aliasing. Right, right, right. yeah. <laughs> you get really, really good image quality. But as you say, the further you are from the screen, there's sort of diminishing returns on it. It's kind of like, I mean, you know, 
for bragging rights, it's absolutely incredible. I mean, this week on the, the DF supporter program, uh, I mean, we've been experimenting with an HDMI 2.1 capture card. We've got 8K60 capture actually working. That's wild. And it does look it does look kind of phenomenal, but it's, you know, it required like a RTX 4090 to, to actually get decent results at 8K. And um, yeah, I'd be really interested to see what a, a quote unquote performance mode for 8K resolution looks like. Um, because, uh, yeah, mm, I, I just think it's far more uh, pertinent to the user to actually have a decent 4K experience. And I'm curious about what this performance mode could be, because um, the one thing that's sort of coming up as a result of of, um, of, of this spec leak is that a lot of people are talking about um, uh, that the spec isn't like, you know, as much of a leap as they expected slightly disappointing thing is there were exactly the same arguments leveled at the ps4 pro where the gpu is essentially an underclocked rx 470 and yet you know it's got decent enhancements within there that actually made 4k possible um, it was a worthwhile machine overall the thing is though that there was a sort of degree of i'm not going to say laziness but there's a certain degree of the fact that developers didn't really have the bandwidth to accommodate all of these different SKUs. So we got a lot of games that ran at 1080p on the base machine and just with the same thing at 1440p on the Pro, which wasn't hugely... It was nice, but not hugely compelling. Yeah. I, I think mm. a lot of it does come down to as well what uh, you know enhancements to the uh, architecture we could see. Because like if you look at the history of AMD GPU designs in consoles and PCs, you see a lot of cross-pollination like Vega in PS4 Pro, the 360 Xenos chip had a lot of TerraScale features, uh, like unified shaders. And it wouldn't be surprising to me if the you know hypothetical PS5 Pro included some RDNA 3 uh, hardware or okay. features or included some RDNA 4 potentially hardware features because the consoles often kind of lead the uh, GPU design and the PC and there's a lot of cross-pollination there, even if it's not the exact same thing. So I think, you know, that's kind of a bit of, bit of a black box because we don't really know what's going on at AMD with respect right. to something like RDNA 4. But if there mm -hmm. is like, you know, just pie in the sky, for instance, say there is like a hardware acceleration for FSR 3 and suppose that FSR 3 is good, that changes the game with respect to a potential PS5 Pro if it does indeed have that feature in hardware, right? So you can see some. Yeah, yeah that, that's an interesting there. point, given that uh, the sort of upscaling techniques DLSS took off when this when PS5 and uh, Series X and S were already well into development, right? AMD kind of had to play catch up with FSR 2. And I could conceivably see a situation where, you know, Sony's going back to AMD and they're kind of working on a, on a way to solve this, to make this better and faster. If they can get, not to say they can actually match DLSS so quickly, but I could see them looking at something like DLSS and saying, we want to achieve this in our console and we want to implement the hardware to make it feasible, especially if you put 8K on the box and actually make it happen, right? You could conceivably then reach an 8K output that looks reasonably okay. And it would also ensure that the 4K mm. output would look great no matter what. Uh, you know what? I, I still see frame gen as a better fit for 120 hertz than for 60 hertz. I, oh, I 100% I agree. And if you're right, if FSR 3's frame gen features that they've been talking about uh, come to fruition in this console, that could actually be a very powerful tool for reaching 120 frames per second as well. Yeah, I wouldn't underestimate Sony's input into this. I mean, right. you know, 
2016, we had the PlayStation 4 Pro with uh, checkerboard rendering. And, um, you know, AMD had nothing like it. Their own upscaling solution that arrived like years later was a basic spatial upscaler. And then we finally got FSR 2, right? Um, but, you know, Sony was just way ahead of the game in that particular regard, you know, with custom hardware, which was entirely, uh, you know, sourced by them and AMD implemented it. Um, but of course, there were software solutions by that point as well. And of course, there was temporal injection. You know, we saw Insomniac's solution for Marvel Spider-Man at the PS4 Pro launch, and it looked phenomenal. So, yeah, I mean, we're looking at the specs, but the experience could be quite something quite different. But that said, I agree with you, Oliver, that, um, that there's uh, plenty of scope for AM, uh, for Sony to dig into the um, AMD roadmap and take out some of those features. I mean, um, RDNA 3 has got dual issue FP32, which is why we're seeing these crazy teraflop figures for RDNA 3. It doesn't seem to do much in the PC space, but it could be quite beneficial within a, you know, within a fixed platform like a console, right? And I'm sure there's more coming. You know, RDNA four is 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 on route, and yeah, there's you know there's there's the scope there for um, a product that will do things that the PlayStation Five simply can't do. But I'm you know just to sort of bring this discussion in a sort of circular way back to the beginning. Why does this machine exist? I mean, how do you get success in the console market? And you do it by getting as many machines out there. Um, at as low a price as possible. So, yeah, this machine has got to justify a premium price point, uh, while at the same time, the base machine has got to get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And we'll talk about some of the crazy deals that are happening with, with PS5 um, shortly. There's just a lot going on there. But yeah, I, what can I say? I'm really interested to see what this is going to actually deliver beyond the specifications, because... Um, yeah, that's just the starting point, right? That's the starting point of um, of the discussion. And it, it really does feel like a, um, a sort of deja vu experience compared to when we first got the specs for the PS4 Pro, which is like, yeah, well, yeah. this is interesting, but, but what's it actually <laughs> going to do that this base machine doesn't do already, apart from having a, a faster GPU? You know, there, was, there were big questions there, and it wasn't until we actually had the presentation that we started to see some amazing stuff. So I do actually have one thought on one further justification that we haven't discussed so far that might actually make this machine a bit more compelling, which is backwards compatibility on the PlayStation 6. Because last generation, we had the PS4 Pro and the Xbox One X, which had a 4K visual target, or we're aiming for a 4K visual target. And then on PlayStation 5 and Series X, you bring those enhancements forward, right? And it also makes it easier to deliver 60 frames per second versions of those existing titles that might have hit 30, uh, 4K 30 on, on the old consoles. And if you presume that Sony sticks with AMD hardware, that's going to give them a big advantage with some of these older titles that may not get updates, right? But might be released in the last three or four years of that console's life cycle. It also puts Microsoft in a bit of an awkward position if they're not delivering a similar kind of enhanced machine. I mean, Microsoft's whole business model seems to be shifting. They're, the hardware is no longer the focus, right? So I think they can certainly get away with not releasing a comp competing machine with this, especially given that they already have two machines in the market. Adding a third one to the mix, I think, would be uh, challenging, especially for developers, right? Because then, presuming this is real, that would mean five bespoke current generation consoles, <laughs> which, uh, yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, there's an interesting uh, discussion adjacent to this, which is what is happening with um, uh, with with Xbox hardware at the moment. It doesn't seem to be having a lot of momentum being put behind it, right? I mean, hopefully the software will drive that momentum because they've got some great stuff coming up. But, you know, it's like your uh, furious fanboy mentioned last week. You know, they don't seem to be doing much with that opportunity when it actually comes to hardware. And, um, yeah, it's it's actually seems to be quite tricky to get an Xbox at the moment, suggesting that they're not focusing on getting hardware out there, which is which is problematic, I think. But yeah, I mean that's that's a completely different discussion. Mm-hmm. The concept of um, Sony releasing a, a, a pro console and Microsoft not um, doesn't look great. I don't think. I feel like the only leak we're missing is we need the confirmation of Mantis Burns Racing Two, just in time <laughs> for a PS5 Pro. I think that would that would complete the circle. That is a really interesting <laughs> thing, right? That, that's a bit of a deep cut there, John. Yeah. 8K60. That's right. Eight, it probably would be. Exactly. It would be AK60. Yeah. That's, that's what we're counting on here. <laughs> For those that don't get that reference, we actually saw a, a, a PS4 Pro game and indeed a PS4 Pro dev kit, I think, um, ahead of... It might have been actually after the reveal, but before right. the deep dives. Yeah, Mantis Burn Racing, native 4K yep. PS4 Pros. Yeah, I think that was one of the game. big first tests you did with in terms of capturing at 4K. It's like, can yeah, we, I went to the developer. Yeah, you went to the developer and, uh, with your gear. It's like, can we capture this native 4K 60 game on a PS4 Pro? And you did. Yeah, we did. And it was very, very reminiscent of the experiences I'm having now with 8K, where you need like gigantic levels of bandwidth because we can't compress it, <laughs> can't compress the footage. Man, yeah, happy days. Thankfully, we got there at the end. Uh, but yeah, I mean, let's just tie a bow on this. PlayStation 5 Pro, we're going to be obviously following up any and all rumors and uh, credible leaks as they appear. So yeah, do please stay tuned. But for now, let's move on to our second news topic. Okay, so looking at the uh, sort of bargain sites on the internet this week, man, there's been some crazy stuff happening with PlayStation 5. In the UK, it's now possible to buy the disc version of the PlayStation 5, not the digital version, uh, with an extra controller for like, uh, well, what is it? £420, which is a a massive discount compared to usual retail pricing. Um, And uh, yeah, we had some comms through from Sony this morning that there's actually a £75 official discount on the cost of the PlayStation 5. And um, I think it's a $50 discount in the US. You can get the God of War Ragnarok um, bundle deal for $500 now. Seems like Sony want to push out a lot of hardware very quickly, and they've got this summer sale going on. Question is why? I mean, is it just basically a big push to uh, get that installed base higher and higher, increase momentum on console sales? Or is it possibly the case that there is a new version of the PlayStation 5 coming and uh, they want to clear inventories? Um, Oliver, thoughts on this one? Well, I mean, it's very curious. You'd certainly think maybe Sony has some excess inventory lying around, maybe, for some reason or another, potentially the launch of a new unit. If so, it would be kind of confusing because they did have that uh, Spider-Man bundle and faceplate. And that's obviously a big thing. And I remember when that uh, was was uh, announced, that really seemed like a bit of a nail in the coffin for a uh, potential PS5 Slim. But then you look at this and it really does seem like 
probably Sony doesn't need to accelerate PS5 sales any more than they already have. You know, it was very difficult to find one on the open market until relatively recently, and they've been selling extremely well. Obviously, they just crossed the 40 million threshold, I think, a few days ago. So it's very mm. curious. If it doesn't indicate a PS5 Slim, then what does it indicate? You know, it's a little weird. It just seems to be a really, I mean, it's a super aggressive move from Sony. And, um, well, what can I say? <laughs> I, if I didn't own a PlayStation 5 and I was in the market for one, I would be very, very tempted to jump in now because, well, John, you're uh, not a fan of the concept of a new PlayStation 5 arriving with a detachable or, or slash optional Blu-ray drive. So the concept that you could get the full-blooded disc version at the cost of what is essentially the digital version right now is quite compelling, right? Yeah, that is compelling. Although I have had a slight turnaround on that external disk drive idea or the add-in disk drive. While I still fear what it would do to physical sales, uh, it does have this benefit of being an easy replacement in the case of an optical drive failure. One of my PS4 Pros, for instance, uh, the disk drive failed, but I believe the disk drives on that system are tied to the hardware specifically yes they so you are. cannot mm -hmm. simply swap in a new disk drive and solve the problem well if they have a swappable yeah. disk drive that's intended to be swapped by the user that basically solves that entirely which that that is one benefit of that model that would be interesting but yes the either way the the pricing right now is is really unusual and i'm it's difficult to understand what they're hoping to achieve here, given that it was only recently that the console transitioned from difficult to find to being widely available, right? So to go instantly into discount mode, uh, I mean, surely there's got to... Has there been any movement on like the, the supply chain side or the components cost side recently that we have any insight into? So I'm wondering like, have the, have the prices just come back down and now they can sell it? Cause obviously in certain regions, they raised the price of the PS five, right? They did. So mm -hmm. is this like a course correction thing? Is it could, it could be related to a, a new slim detachable model. It could just be wanting to bump up their numbers further. Like there's so many different, potential reasons here but it's difficult mm -hmm. to say for sure what the heck they're doing i think what's surprising to me is how aggressive the pricing right. cuts are because you know you could lop off uh, well the in the us it kind of makes sense right because you know you get a 50 dollars discount and uh, you're getting a good bundle deal whereas in the uk it seems like the gloves have come off uh, you know 420 pounds for a disc unit plus an extra controller is just kind of you know crazy and it's it goes beyond what sony is officially mandating in its comms uh copy of which you received this morning uh, which does confirm that this is you know quite a an official uh, thing an, an official thing yeah absolutely yeah so this is really really interesting and again it, it i do think it puts pressure on microsoft as well because they don't seem to have the latitude to reduce prices on series x and there seems to but there does seem to be a a sort of lack of Series X's to begin with, whereas Sony are just basically seemingly able to replenish the market that much more quickly and now are able to instigate these aggressive price drops. In terms of the um, uh, the, the supply side um, situation, you would expect the core silicon to get cheaper, sure. right? Yeah, over time. Basically, uh, once these cutting-edge fabrication technologies mature, 
um, then typically they become cheaper for Sony and Microsoft to access. So yes, you would expect to see some price drops over time, but this level of uh, price drop is quite well, impressive, I guess. I'm also seeing uh, on Amazon UK a controller, standalone, the standalone white DualSense controller has been dropped to 40 bucks, 40 pounds. Right. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot going on. Which, there. by the way, that I is think... a far more reasonable price for a controller. I think, like the the initial <laughs> pricing of modern controllers is really absurd. I think. I think one thing that is perhaps uh, exceptional in the UK's favour is that um, the strength of the currency has increased recently. Uh, so if everything is sort of pegged to, to dollar value, then it kind of makes sense that they're able to cut deeper on the UK side. True. But even so, you know, there's some great deals there. And um, yeah, I'd, I'd seriously be considering one at, at these prices. It's just kind of crazy. But um, the implications in terms of a new model, I, you know, the thing, as Oliver pointed out, the, the big thing that counts against it is that we know that in September time, there's going to be a new PlayStation, custom PlayStation mm -hmm. arriving that is seemingly based on the current model which kind of throws a potential spanner in the works there. Unless, of course, there is no PS5 Slim. And to be fair to uh, Tom Henderson, who initially leaked the um, or reported on the leak of uh, the detachable BD drive, he's never said it's a Slim, right? He's just said it's a new model right, right. with a detachable drive. Mm -hmm. Again, lots of questions. Oh. And yeah, Probably. I'm going to be fascinated to take a look at that model once it appears. I'm just looking at prices the, on on controllers on other markets, and they're bad. So the UK, really, like Amazon US, it's still seventy bucks. But on Germany here, <clears throat> you can get the white one for sixty six euros. But a lot of the other colors, Ooh. like galactic purple, they're asking a hundred euros. So I'm like, that's pretty galactic. Like, what on earth? All the, all the color variants are between like 80 and a hundred euros. Oh, Nova pink, 99, 98. What a steal. <laughs> Very strange. Wow. I think ultimately the, uh, the fate of the new model is, and in terms of uh, your fears for the physical market, it's all going to come down to, can you buy a PlayStation five with a, with an optical drive? in the pack yep. or do you have to exactly. buy it separately because you know the history of um uh, peripherals for consoles is not a particularly not rich and exciting one and yeah i think the strategy there is going to define that but i think that's all we've really got to say about that one let's just say that i really want to see this new model assuming it's assuming it exists uh but right now at least certainly some very very interesting deals on the playstation 5 uh, but let's move on to our next topic. Man, there's a lot of Sony news this week, a lot of Sony leaks. And um, it looks as though, not entirely confirmed, it could be a fake, but it looks as though we got a first look at Sony's Project Q handheld. And, well, this isn't the venue or the, or the presentational method that you would want to debut a new piece of technology. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, Oliver, it was kind of underwhelming really wasn't it yeah it kind of just looks like a fairly simple android device with a kind of controller shell around it the interface looks like pretty regular android as far as i'm aware like you might see in a tablet i mean hopefully in the final version sony would have some kind of skin over it to make it look nicer than this because this really does look very bare bones 
Um, yes. They're not going to release it like that. There's no way. No, there, there, no there, there's no way. And then there's an <laughs> app called QC Test, uh, which is presumably is the Qualcomm Test app. So it presumably has like a Snapdragon chip under the hood that doesn't really narrow it down very much because Snapdragon chips come in all ranges of different power. But, you know, and probably the device is really just going to be an exclusive streaming device like Sony has stated. So mm-hmm. uh, to me, this does not look that great. I still think there could be a lot of value to the device if it delivers very, very high quality streaming. That's a big question mark. Certainly, this doesn't really indicate anything on that front. But uh, the teardown that they did does make it look a little bit cheap and does make me a little bit more skeptical of the value of this device. But it's hard to say without actually seeing that streaming experience because if that's good, you know, it could be interesting. Mm. Yeah. Uh, what, what did you think of it? I mean, it was the most unflattering way to present a device you know, basically a pretty low quality video. Um, you didn't actually see any of the software of the device itself. And um, yeah, and then they sort of tore it apart and it looked pretty cheap, I'd say. What do you think? Yeah, John? that's a that's a good way to describe it. It does look like just a controller add-on for a cell phone. It looks like they slammed like a little uh, Android tablet in between this plastic mold and that's it. It doesn't have any of the typical like design uh flourishes that we expect from sony handhelds in the past right like it really does just like well we'll just use the dual sense shell and kind of extend it and put this thing in there uh but the Mm. fact that it is an android based system does at least give me some hope that it could be jailbroken and turned into something (laughs) else you know it's basically another not that there's not plenty of options on the market already for android based emulation devices but you know it it would be cool if it could be used for something other than streaming is what i'm saying that could give it more utility down the line that it won't have by being a streaming only device yeah yeah Mm -hmm. i mean you could have uh in theory i mean well let's let's be clear here the concept of having a, a dual sense um in a kind of handheld form is a, a pretty compelling one, I'd say. But at the same time, yeah, I'd be wanting to use GeForce Now on it <laughs> <laughs> as opposed to remote play. So I guess the concept that it is an Android device potentially means it's hackable um, to, to be able to support other features, possibly emulators as well. The question is whether Sony are going to take a lot of time to lock it down. Right. Um, and, you know, fundamentally, what is the core use case of the device? It's to stream PlayStation 5 games. We still have no real idea of whether it's just going to be standard remote play. We've said it several times in the past. That's not really no. good enough. There's also, um, <laughs> this has to be running some sort of integrated SOC, right? So given the time this is intended to release, I wonder how it compares to the specs on a PS Vita, right? Like... <laughs> I'm actually wondering if it, if it's a potent enough SOC in there that it could actually just emulate PS Vita and PSP stuff yeah. and become sort of like, you know, an extension of those systems uh, using an official PlayStation product. Mm. I'm slightly sort of underwhelmed by this footage and I'm kind of hoping it is fake because the lineage of um, Sony's handheld devices is 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 awesome, right? I mean, obviously, the the PSP is kind of legendary for what it achieved. It didn't quite match the DS in terms of unit sales, but it was very it successful. Was still, still very successful, absolutely. It had a fantastic screen, um, uh, trailing, ghosting apart. It, you know, it was it was really really cool. 
Vita comes along, OLED screen. Um, some of the games we had on that were just were just brilliant, but it was you know didn't quite hit the target as a as a sort of dedicated handheld device. It didn't really have the proper backing from Sony, uh, but it was a it was a really well built piece of kit, right? It was desirable. You wanted it, and that's not what I'm getting from, from this wow. leaked footage. Looking at the at these charts here, so the PSP was a, the eleventh best selling console ever. Right? right, that's pretty good. Like uh, PS2, DS, Switch, PS4, oh, basically all the Playstations except for Vita, <laughs> uh, and stuff like Xbox 360 and Wii. Those are ahead of it, but there are loads below it. So, like the PSP actually sold is over 80 million units. Right, that's a lot. That's wow. a that's a good amount of consoles right there. Uh, mm -hmm. Whereas PS Vita is more in below 20 million <laughs> so it, it it did not do nearly as well as we know I, I was thinking the other day that there was a really interesting opportunity for sony to maybe have a bit more of a conventional successor device to something like the ps vita except maybe it would focus on ps1 ps2 uh, psp and PS, ps vita games as emulating those titles and then it would also have some streaming capabilities you know, yeah. like just give it a bit of local device capability. It doesn't need new software because, you know, there's a tremendous variety of software for older PlayStation devices and give that to users and make that a new mobile device. That might be mm -hmm. really compelling, whereas this seems very limited. Unless you can open it up and just run whatever emulators on it, then that'd be really cool because, like you said, the controller is very high quality and that could be a good experience. But uh, so far, just as a streaming device, it seems like unnecessarily limited for what the hardware is probably capable yeah. of i really I, I really like that idea oliver i think that actually does have promise to be an official playstation device that's portable focused on classic games you know that would also encourage them to release more of those games again many of them have already been released on prior storefronts but no longer available on the modern ones but this would be a chance to do that right uh just like a celebration of classic playstation games on a dedicated handheld that also supports the streaming feature. I think that would be a, such an easy sell comparatively, and it would probably get people excited. Um, you know the problem, though, What's right? that? You, you run a game locally, and you have pristine image quality, and then you have the streaming experience from your cutting-edge PlayStation 5, and, and there's the potential that the streaming uh, quality just won't be up to scratch. It will look poor. You're, you're not wrong. Quality. Still, <laughs> yeah. I think it's not really where Sony's marketing no. aim is going to lie for this. It's it's definitely a companion device for the PlayStation Five. And uh, again, you know, there's a lot going on here. Let's say there is going to be a, a new PlayStation Five arriving later this year, per Tom Henderson, and the the Project Q handheld. There's going to be a lot for us to get our teeth into uh, uh, towards the end of the year, as if we haven't got enough <laughs> to be getting on with already. <laughs> but yes, right now, that's what we've got to go on. And uh, I've got to say that, well, I'm, I'm hoping for, for better from uh, the actual hands-on experience. Okay, uh, let's move on to our next news topic. Okay, so um, it's a shame Alex isn't here this week because he's currently handling our Ratchet & Clank PC deep dive um but we did manage to get some content out um at launch it was a three-way comparison between uh the playstation 5 running in performance rt mode the pc version maxed and as usual i had uh the the crappy min spec experience which you know 
to be fair, it wasn't that crappy. Um, however, uh, one of the first things I did was to actually uh, install Windows 10 on the, an actual PlayStation 4 hard drive. <laughs> install Ratchet and Clank on an actual PlayStation 4 hard drive and just see what would happen at the very, very lowest settings. Um, so with Windows 10, I actually found that it was less prone to crashing uh, initially than it was with uh, Windows 11. And uh, in the footage you're seeing here, you can see that I was actually using the very low preset at a dynamic 1080p, which just seemed to crash on Windows 11, but was fine on Windows 10. So we've got better image quality than uh, what I actually had in the three-way stream there. Um, but as you can see, it's not a great experience on the PlayStation 4 hard drive. Massive stuttering, massive loading, uh, just loading the game, which you don't see here, took, took ages. Um, John, mm. let's talk about this. But also, I mean, a lot of people kind of don't really understand why we did this. And also there's been a lot of, um, uh, I don't know, people just don't seem to have grasped what's going on generally with the whole storage situation with Ratchet and Clank. How do we unpeel this one? I think the thing people should consider is that there's more to the data access speed than just the drive that the game is stored on. There's many other things to consider, including the amount of RAM in your system, uh, the CPU. Uh, the big thing for PS5 is uh, the, the decompression, right? The hardware block for decompressing. Yeah. That's probably at least as big and probably even a larger portion of why they're able to do what they can do on that machine. And it's all these different elements coming together that makes this feasible on that low spec PC. What, what really thrashed it. And the reason I think it was so slow is the fact that one, obviously the hard drive is very slow, but also you ran that with eight gigabytes of memory, which is pretty low. Yes. I think you had a <laughs> four gigabyte GPU, right? Yeah, it was basically the minimum spe uh, specification as outlined by um, Insomniac right. uh, and, and Dixis there, which is very low settings. Uh, Ryzen 3 3100, um, RX 570. The 570 is interesting because actually it's a 470. I actually downclocked the 570 to 470 spec for this particular footage, I believe. Okay. So it's like an overclocked playstation 4 pro gpu there right um but the cpu is way beyond what the jaguars are doing and yes. you know the the concept of running ratchet and clank on a 10 year old laptop hard drive the point i think i wanted to make with that was basically you know insomniac got a lot of heat for for saying well this game could run on playstation 4 just one of the playstation 4 components arguably its weakest component uh, brings the game to its knees. Yeah, uh, We've actually got more memory here across the system than we would have in a PlayStation 4. Um, and yeah, so this concept that, it, you know, Ratchet and Clank Rift Apart, as it presents on PlayStation 5, could actually have been done on PS4 is, in my opinion, a total nonsense. They could have created a version of Ratchet and Clank Rift Apart, but it wouldn't have looked anything like this i think and now you can see why <laughs> i think that's the real point here is that uh, you know any of these conversions are technically possible especially these days but decisions made during the development of the game were clearly done so with the target hardware in mind and if they had been making this as a cross-gen game i'd imagine that certain decisions may not have been made like those types of sequences would have been pared back changed the way they do it there's many things that they could have done to offset that because 
conceptually the idea of warping between different locations that's been done before on much less powerful hardware the concept is possible what's different here is the way they do it and the amount of data that they're moving around that makes it so impressive mm -hmm. in this case right so uh in terms of just rendering the visuals though yeah i think ps4 could do a decent job rendering the game visually yes they would have to cut back on things as you'd expect much like spider-man but probably even more so because ratchet is pretty heavy on the geometry and there's just a lot going on there that's a little different than spider-man but i still think it it's conceivable to get a decent version of it up and running on ps5 it's just all this fast uh, traversal uh, loading of assets that stuff would be tricky and it's not just because of the hard drive it, that that the ram and cpu situation are equally important here because like you said in that yeah. min spec pc we're using the cpu blows the the jaguars out of the water right like those things yeah <laughs> and talking to developers you know we often did hear the jaguar cpu was the was a huge bottleneck for them but equally so is the hard drive the hard drive, having to work with that hard drive on that system was difficult because so much effort and engineering time had to be poured into figuring out how to get data where they needed fast enough. And that requires a lot of prediction and a lot of just, you know, very careful design to ensure that they can get what they need when they need it. And freeing them from that constraint definitely makes thing, their life easier and allows them to potentially create things that they may not otherwise have gone with uh, given those constraints so it does sort of open things up so which you know it's all interesting to discuss but yeah yeah i mean some more footage from that uh whole experience you know basically there are bits where it works okay right where you suspect that the background streaming is actually lighter than 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 usual but and you know you get reasonable gameplay then because the storage isn't being hammered memory isn't being hammered but, you know, as soon as there is a portal effect uh, or a cutscene where I'm assuming that there's some uh, background loading going on, it just it just collapses. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's really not great we, at all. I mentioned this to Nixies, actually, when we were talking with them and it did it did seem like RAM really is one of the big key differentiators here right like if you have a lot more memory it's a lot easier to sort of load up things as needed beforehand and ensure that it's kind of ready in time uh, also you know a faster cpu and having a system capable of handling the decompression quickly enough helps too all of that kind of offsets the hard drive's performance issues and helps make it playable often hdd especially in a more powerful system but when you're limited in all the ways that a ps4 pro would be perhaps even more so it's just it's too much yeah and i also think like even if let's say you did actually manage to backport a game like rift apart to the playstation 4 and playstation 4 pro is a version of rift apart where you're maybe waiting 10 seconds or 20 seconds for it to swap worlds during a, uh, one of the game's cinematic sequences in particular during that playable kind of portal sequence or on uh, blizzard prime or any of the worlds with the crystals that you have to hit is that really a version of Ratchet and Clank that people want to play? I mean, seriously, it's not really Rift Apart anymore, right? Without that key kind of central gameplay conceit, I think. Absolutely. Uh, just one more thing about the the, the laptop uh, PlayStation <laughs> 4 hard drive experience. Uh, obviously, we're seeing that the portal sequence just totally collapses and it actually crashes at the end. Um, however, the thing to bear in mind is that... Um, we're actually on very low settings there, uh, which are specifically designed to reduce the burden of data transfer 
right? So it's not even an apples to apples comparison with PlayStation True. 5. <laughs> and it still collapses. So, you know, there was a lot of um, excitement and uh, a little bit of um, cynicism about just how great the PlayStation 5's um, storage and decompression systems were. And, um, you know, there were some interesting comparisons pre-launch with Marvel's Spider-Man. But, you know, when you actually have a PC port, look, you know, looking at this and doing the fact, you know, and seeing the fact that it just doesn't really work whatsoever it really sort of hammers home how important um those aspects of the system are and you know to be fair i think another thing it demonstrates is that um access to fast storage access to fast decompression are going to be a key component of actual current generation games once you know uh, cross-gen is completely a thing of the past and yeah, we're seeing the implications of that play out with Ratchet and Clank right now. So yeah, interesting stuff. Any any final thoughts on this one, Oliver? Because you did the editing work <laughs> on uh, on our on our comparison video. Yeah, it just it looks pretty tough. I was actually playing this. Uh, I'm covering this game on Steam Deck for us, and it was very remarkable switching from the uh, internal drive over to the micro SD card for Ratchet and Clank where you did see just massively reduced uh, performance in those portal sequences in those sections. So I think it's it's just a very tough game and it pushes current generation hardware in a way that is like very unique to current generation hardware, I would say, to that capability set. And when you see it on PC, you know, it's clearly just not, not quite ready for uh, last gen hardware, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, the other thing which I thought was quite interesting from the comparison we did was that the PC version actually uh, did the portal transitions slower than PlayStation 5. And uh, that was a pertinent point, which was worth pointing out, right? But just one thing to bear in mind is that um, this is the first real stress test for direct storage on the PC side, right? Um, obviously, the technology is going to continue to be refined. Um, but it also shows you know, that the PlayStation implementation is kind of like the finished article and it's been there for, you know, a long while. Interesting stuff. Any final thoughts for you about uh, Ratchet and Clank uh, before we move on there, John? Oh, no, just it's, I, I enjoyed replaying it again. It's a good game. It's fun. Mm -hmm. It's, it's Absolutely. quite, it still stands as one of the few showpieces this generation of a game that really seems to push technology forward. Uh you know, it do, it definitely doesn't feel like a like a last gen game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it was quite interesting that you could actually see that while the game was playable on a hard drive, um, it, a fast hard drive. You know, your system was uh, is a fast system. Yeah, that's true. Uh, with a lot of memory, but it was still palpably different and less impressive from a from a streaming and storage perspective than the ps5 version yeah right? many more stutters when played off of that 7200 rpm hard drive like yes completely playable but also not optimal and for mm -hmm. actually playing the game i moved it back to an m2 drive i mean one thing i do want to say to the audience is that yeah running the game from a ps4 laptop hard drive was uh was just something i wanted to try but I do also have a PC that's built around the uh, the Xbox One CPU. Oh baby! So if I'd had the time, <laughs> I'd have gone back and actually uh, actually run it on the uh, Jaguar CPU to see what would have happened there. Uh, I suspect it would have been just total carnage. It's total carnage here. I mean, <laughs> just crashes, things not loading, things taking ages to load. 
And that's with, you know, a reasonably powerful PC system. Even the MinSpec isn't, you know, it's, it's probably a lot more powerful than a lot of people have. But yeah, total carnage. But yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, that was fun. certainly going to be interested. Certainly going to be interested to see how other storage heavy games uh, uh, stack up as we as we move further into this generation. Okay, let's move on to supporter Q&A. So if you don't know, Digital Foundry has our supporter program hosted on Patreon. And every week uh, we ask our supporters to suggest topics and ask questions for inclusion in this show. Um, we usually get like about 50 questions. We can't answer them all. And some of them we're just not equipped to answer. So we choose the ones that uh, like, you know, the ones where we can provide value and slash or entertainment. And we're going to start with this question from Luke. Why aren't developers including a quote-unquote uncapped frame rate toggle in console games for fu future, hopefully still, backwards compatible systems? There are games on both PS5 and Xbox that are stuck in locked 30 FPS hell and will probably never get a patch. Sad. Uh, Oliver, thoughts on this one? There aren't so many games mm. stuck in locked 30 FPS hell, right? Uh, I mean... Older titles, for sure, like from 2014 or 2015, 2016. Oh, of course, the older games. Oh, no, the, yeah. The, I think he's talking about PS5 yeah. and Xbox Series X titles. Oh, not, okay. Not last-gen system. Not last-gen But th that's a good point yes. about the last-gen systems. There's a lot of games that are, are capped to 30 there. You yeah. can't do anything about. Yeah, for, for PS5 and uh, current-generation Xbox, there's there's really quite very few, uh, very few titles. But um, I don't know. I mean, I'd love it. To be honest, I think this would be great. But also, I think it's a little bit tough because you're selling a product to users who may not understand exactly what that toggle is supposed to do. Um, and they may end up with an inferior experience. And ultimately, you know, you're, the bulk of your sales are going to be in that early period. So I feel like the incentive is maybe not so much there to just throw in an unlock toggle. Um, I think mm. it would be cool, but I don't know. I'm sort of mixed on it because I feel like the average person might might not be able to to exercise that ability <laughs> in the best way. Yeah. Okay, John. Yeah. I mean, there is a shades of that. There's also issues where if you just allow it to go fully unlocked, uh, depending on where the bottlenecks are, that can cause some really nasty frame time issues, even yeah. if the average frame rate increases. Uh, and I think it's just, they don't want users to mistakenly end up doing it, you know, not that that hasn't existed before. I remember Bioshock back in 2007 had like the V-Sync op off option where it just allowed the game oh, yeah. to run unlocked. It looked horrible in action, but yes, it, was, it, it was interesting that that was there. But I think developers are just most interested in ensuring that the bulk of the users will have a good, consistent experience out of the gate. Although still having it as having their selected mode as default maybe putting warnings around the performance option in such a way as to like deter people from using it unless they understand what it does. That's potentially feasible. I don't know. Mm. I mean, I've got a couple of thoughts on this. First of all, there are games which were built for 30 FPS. So if we go back to Horizon Zero Dawn, it was built for 30 frames per second, right? And um, a lot of engineering effort was required to get that PlayStation 5 patch uh, out there, which ran at 60. Um, so not all games uh, can just have an uncapped frame rate toggle uh, that we would expect it to work. But I would expect that a lot of them would. Um, but, you know, as you say, Oliver, it could be the, the the situation that people look at it, try it and think, 
well, this is really, really bad. What, why is this here? There is a potential thing possibly where um, maybe the platform holder could, in, uh, could include an API call. And if it's not an existing system uh, that comes back, then mm. it does unlock the frame rate. Mm. Do you see what I'm saying there? Yeah. Uh, but even so, we're talking about testing on uh, hardware that doesn't exist yet and it might not work. Yeah. So maybe yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of situations here where um, it might not actually work out for the best. But maybe it I would do be see... like, yeah, like a boost mode toggle where it's like use it your own peril, <laughs> you know. Well, you know, going back to the PlayStation Five Pro discussion, I really do hope there is actually a boost mode in there because I suspect that um, just having increased frequency on the GPU and increased frequency on the CPU could be quite transformative to a lot of those games that don't hit 60 at the moment on PlayStation 5. So, yeah, it's interesting. Possibly something could be done at the at the operating system level, but you'd expect backwards compatibility just to provide better results on games targeting 60 anyway, I guess. Yeah, this is, this is a tricky one. I mean, I kind of advocate that it's a good idea, but giving visibility to it on current gen systems could be a bad thing uh, as has been pointed out but uh yeah i guess that's down to the individual developer right i don't really think there's much more we can add to that one so uh, let's move on to the next question okay so this question is from ts games hi df exclamation point i remember the quote unquote teraflops war was going on when the current gen consoles were released back then there was already uh talk about it not being sorry back then there was already talk about a one-to-one -one comparison not being possible since newer architectures might be more efficient, etc. This made me wonder why the hardware in the ASUS ROG Ally is claimed as having up to 8.6 teraflops versus the Steam Deck's 1.6, which obviously doesn't translate in such a difference in real-world performance as we've seen so far. In fact, this would mean the Ally would be close to a PS5, which is out of the question, I think, and you'd be quite right. This made me wonder what these numbers actually mean these days. And are they now completely pointless? Thanks for your thoughts on this, exclamation point. Um, yeah, so this is a feature of RDNA 3. It's the dual issue FP32, where essentially, you know, um, when you calculate teraflops uh, on existing architectures, um, yeah, basically that gets doubled automatically because um, uh, I think on current architectures or older architectures, you can process two operations at once, but with dual issue FP32, in theory, you can do four, right? Which just doubles your teraflops. But yes, it doesn't make sense in terms of actual real world performance or, or judging it because games are typically not tapping into that feature. And if they are, they're not delivering hugely beneficial results. Um, yeah, the whole teraflop thing, it's kind of, yeah, I don't know what you make about this one, John, but um, it's kind of all blown up in the face of um, Xbox Series X versus PlayStation 5, really, hasn't it? I mean, I think it just doesn't really, come, doesn't really make sense we've anymore. We've come to the realization where it's not really that useful of a statistic at this point. It does give you some insight into the hardware differences, but it, it's not really a great marketing point any longer. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I'm not surprised to see it kind of fall by the wayside. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thoughts, Oliver? Well, I mean, are they completely pointless? I don't think so. No, not I think they're relevant. Pointless. Yeah. No, it's, it's, yeah. It's basically theoretical compute, right? That's, yeah. that's the, that's it. <laughs> yeah. I'm just addressing his question. He says, are they completely yeah. pointless? 
you know, I, I don't think so. I think they're relevant across, uh, rather within an architecture, right? So I'm evaluating the relative hardware performance of RDNA 2 GPUs, you know, one versus the other on PC, that makes sense. Across similar architectures, like from, I would say, GCN to RDNA 2, um, that span of architectures. Now, there is a little bit of a difference when you go to RDNA 1. You know, it's a little bit, uh, it understates it a bit if you just think about the teraflops there. But it's kind of roughly comparable, I would say, in terms of the teraflop numbers. Um, but across vendors, certainly they don't mean much. Across certain architectural jumps, certainly they don't mean much. Um, just within an architecture, they can. They do They do tell you something of the relative performance. Except, I guess, when we're talking about these closed boxes like the PS5 and Series X where there is a theoretical 20% advantage for one of those consoles, but it's not manifested in a lot of software. So, you know, it's just the way yeah, it is. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that you get a theoretical compute number, but at this point, it doesn't really equate to the uh, to the gameplay experience. And we've, I guess the first evidence we saw of that was um, Xbox One X versus PS4 Pro, 6 teraflops versus 4.2. And yet the One X was producing much better results than the pro right and if you look at the actual architecture of the machine you know there's there's more memory there's more memory bandwidth all of that means you get more out of the gpu uh, so you kind of have to look at things more holistically and then looking at the um, series x and the playstation 5 hmm, i mean obviously microsoft invested heavily in the silicon there but that win uh, in terms of um you know increased resolutions and frame rates I think it's best to say it's patchy. Sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't. Sometimes PlayStation 5 is actually uh, faster than Xbox Series X. There's a whole lot going on there, and it's actually moving beyond the hardware now into into software, into APIs, and a and, and whole bunch of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I do think that the RDNA 3 situation with the dual-issue FP32 is going to basically produce these wholly unrealistic numbers that are totally divorced from what we expect from, uh, you know, what a teraflop means for gameplay. But yes, <laughs> the, the ally certainly isn't close to the PlayStation 5 in performance terms. <laughs> no. uh, let's move on to the next question. This one from Axel HYC. Hello, DF, exclamation point. Not a question today, just a petition to please give Rich the high-end PC in the comparisons for once. I, I can yeah. feel his sadness through the screen. Give that man those glorious faced rays. He's had enough cube maps, exclamation <laughs> point. Uh, I actually really love low-end hardware. I love how games scale. I really enjoyed the Ratchet experience. Uh, you know, I made some fun out of it, but ultimately... That min spec experience was far from a disaster. It was yeah. it was all right, yeah. And I think it's important to show that, mm -hmm. and I think it's important also to cater for that uh, lower end audience because, well, that that system isn't you know a couple of years ago that system wasn't lower end, right? And there's going to be a lot of those systems about still, and it's I think it's quite important for us to prove that you can actually still get a decent gameplay experience out of it. And I'm 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 love to play. Um, <laughs> Uh, games on 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 really sort of uh, uh, less capable machines uh, for that really, and just to see how low you could go. I mean, Oliver, the uh, the Steam Deck version. I mean, the the PC that I had mm -hmm. for the min spec experience. There, storage aside, it's actually more powerful, I think, than the Steam Deck, and yet the yeah. Steam Deck version of Ratchet actually holds up really, really well. 
Yeah, it runs surprisingly well in the Steam Deck. It's like you can put the settings up to like medium, a couple on high, you know, runs it. Uh, you need to engage uh, some upsampling to get it into a good performance window, but you know, it looks pretty good in the Steam Deck, Steam Deck's display. It runs basically always above 30 with those settings and it looks really good. And the portals aren't a big issue as long as you have it on that internal SSD. So it's a pretty good experience actually. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, let's move on to the next question. Uh, this one's from Leftist Tominid. Uh, <laughs> Oliver normally has an eight hour time offset with the UK folks and a nine hour top time offset with the US expats in Germany. It is fairly obvious that this is generally not beneficial. But what are some instances where this difference actually benefits DF workflow? So, yeah, this is an interesting point, right, Oliver? And I actually feel quite guilty about the fact we're <laughs> on a completely different time zone to you because as I don't know what the time is as we're recording this, but it is early morning for you, isn't it? Yeah, it is uh, 2.30 a.m., basically. <laughs> but, I, I mean, I think that uh, I only need to be synchronous with everyone else for, like, meetings. We only have one of those a week. And then if I'm on the DF Direct, I have to be synchronous i suppose with everyone else but everything else is asynchronous my work is very much you know i do it all my myself and then i submit work when it's uh, completely finished so usually no feedback before i uh, before i'm finished i can't really think of any particular benefit or great downside and and then also i tend to keep some odd hours sometimes so i'm often awake during uh european appropriate hours anyway so <laughs> not such a big okay. deal yeah, so no real benefits, but no real downsides, I guess, is, is the answer to that one. Yeah, like I, 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 could, I can't recall a time, maybe a couple times if I need a code or need an account <laughs> yes. password. Oh, right. But yeah, yeah, Steam Guard. Steam Guard <laughs> code, yeah. That's popped up a few times, but outside of that, it's been very, you know, no, no issue. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, final question, this one from Diego LA. Hello, DF team. This is going to likely be a John question. Anyone else with insight, please chime in. Uh, what are the benefits of playing retro games on original hardware if the console is well emulated? By well em emulated, I mean most, if not all, games run as well or better than native with no obvious bugs. I have retro games and consoles, and rather than RGB or HDMI modding them, they stay on the shelf, and I simply emulate those games when I want to play them. For example, does an HDMI Dreamcast look better than simply using ReadVeam at 4K on PC? How do 240p consoles resolve on a 4K panel? I'm not sure it's as clear as simply emulating it. That said, I've not seen it in person, which is why I'm asking. Am I really missing out? Yeah, I mean, for me, it just it's all down to the display you're using. Uh, I like to play on CRTs and... Well, there's 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 two factors. There's the CRT thing, and then there's the fact that I still like using the original media because, and that actually ties more into like an issue with ROM lists where I just find them overwhelming and unable to really focus and enjoy the games on their own. Basically, it's just right. like you've got all these things here, and it's it kind of changes the way you actually play the games. So being able to use the original games combined with a CRT display just makes that sort of preferable to me. And I just like the experience of using those original controllers as they were intended. And there's, you know, there's characteristics of the hardware that aren't always, you know, it doesn't quite look and feel exactly the same via emulation necessarily. But yeah, if you're just going to play on a flat panel screen, then, you know, it's cool to have 
there's there's original consoles, but emulation can provide a similar, sometimes even better experience depending on the system. So mm. it really depends. What about the controller? Uh, there's ways to adapt those controllers to the PC as well, but that obviously becomes you know more difficult in terms of getting the correct adapters and making that work. But it's definitely possible. And same on the Mister. See, I, I get the argument that um, you know basically it's a lot more convenient to emulate, right? And there are benefits to emulation, as uh, Diego is pointing out there. But the concept. I think there's there's a part of the experience, a part of the retro experience is actually taking you back to those times where you were actually using it as your daily driver console or PC yep, or yep. whatever. And handling the game, handling the controller, um, it's all part of the experience, right? And I think it's a crucial part of the experience, the actual sort of tactile nature of it that you don't really get on emulation. And the concept of handling a game an actual physical cartridge or a disc, it it kind of has value in a way that selecting a ROM doesn't. Yeah. Uh, that's that's kind of my take exactly. on it. Exactly. That's basically how I feel. So it really just depends on how much you value that original experience. But if you've not, if you're, if you're listening to this and haven't actually experienced one of those machines on a CRT in a while, I recommend doing it just to see what it's like because it does have there's there's a feel to it that's very different from just emulating it on a modern display. And you know, CRT shaders and such, those are great too, but they only solve one aspect of it, and that's like the sort of replicating the physical look of it in terms of just how it looks to your eyes, but it doesn't solve the motion issue. So and even even if you get perfect motion on a flat panel with like strobing or some other techniques, it's still again it looks different than the way a CRT behaves, and there is definitely something to be said for that. Just having that direct responsive CRT, uh, it adds a lot to the experience. I think. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, I think it's also the fact um, beyond authenticity, it's artist intent, uh, where you know a lot of those sprite assets. 2D bitmaps were literally built for a completely different display medium, and they don't look as good, generally speaking, on a on a flat panel display. That's right. And so, yeah, there is much to be said there for. Um, I mean, I guess the Mister can be hit, hooked up to a CRT, right? It can with the right board, but and I I do like the Mister. I use it for arcade stuff mainly. That is not that easy to get the real original yeah. boards, but. For other consoles that I have the real system, I don't really like to just load them up on there because, again, it just turns into the ROM list thing. And it's just it's just missing a certain tactile element there. Uh, it's difficult mm -hmm. to explain. Not everybody's going to experience that, but that is definitely the case for me. So where do you stand on machines like, you know, the analog uh, machines that aim to replace original hardware? Those are really interesting, especially when with the ones that support the DAC because they do hook up to a CRT. I like them because they basically allow you to use that original media and those original controllers. And I think that's a, that's a cool way to experience it. And the HDMI output is specifically useful to me for capture on stuff. So I, you know, I use a mix of that or the real hardware run through a scalers like the RetroTINK. Uh, but, you know, getting that digital output into your PC into the capture card is also important for me. So yeah, if, if you're just playing on a flat screen and you want to use original cartridges, that's definitely a good way to go. 
So it's really, it's going to vary from person to person, depending on what they want out of the experience. But emulation is completely viable and often excellent, uh, especially for things like PlayStation. Like Duck Station is amazing right now. You can really ramp up the quality of your visuals, but still keep it looking suitably, moderately authentic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on this one, Oliver? Are you into retro games? We don't really know. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I, I got rid of my CRT a while ago, uh, you no. know, so many years ago. It wasn't my choice. Okay. My, my family threw it out. Uh, oh, but no. it, was, it was quite a nice <laughs> HD CRT, a Toshiba, I think. Um, no, I mean, I I think it does de depend on the, on the display medium. I would think more about that than the device itself. And if you have a, you know, a mister that can support output to a, a CRT and a good CRT, you know, I don't have I don't have the ROMless problem. I don't I don't mind that too much. But uh, yeah, I mean, I do like original hardware as well. I have a bunch of old consoles, but I use mostly various scalers and HDMI solutions to connect them because I don't have room for a, a big CRT. I wish I did. But um, yeah, I think it really does depend on the display medium. And ideally, you would be playing those consoles on a really good CRT. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that pretty much sums up the position there. And uh, yeah, I guess that's the end of that particular question. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it's the end of this show. So if you did enjoy it, please do uh, like, subscribe, share, ring the bell for notionally instant notifications. Good news, everyone. My uh, random gaming in HD notifications are back. That's good. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's doing some good stuff there. Um, yeah, DF Supports Program, join us, uh, see our bonus materials. Uh, this week we posted uh, what could well be the first uh, 8K 60 frames per second uh, capture from our capture card. Lots of work going on behind the scenes there. Uh, lots of early access happening. We should be posting the Road Rash DF Retro episode to Retro supporters soon, right, John? Yes, it's almost done. This episode has been... Yeah. <sighs> It's taken a lot out of me getting back into doing this kind of thing. And I'm almost there. I'm right. I'm, I'm closing in on the end. Just another two or three days of like hard work and it'll be ready. And excellent, uh, excellent yeah. stuff. This, yeah. I hope everybody enjoys. <laughs> <laughs> it has been a, a, a monstrous effort, that one. I'm really looking forward to seeing yeah. it. Uh, I've also, uh, yeah, so I, I've shared... Uh, an incomplete version with some of the patrons for feedback. So I'm trying to get, oh, get them involved as well. And, you know, it's been really fun uh, talking with them about it and like hearing what they think and making some tweaks based on that. And it's a, it's been a fun exercise involving the patrons a little bit in the process now. So that's another, mm -hmm. another bonus, I guess, of doing the supporter program. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You have access to this brain trust of, uh, you know, highly knowledgeable, very positive individuals that just make our lives a lot more pleasant. Yeah, they're great. <laughs> and uh, certainly adds a lot of value. Like, you know, there's, we're going to be posting uh, the AMD 4800S desktop kit review soon. If it's not up already, it is on, on early access right now to supporters, uh, by the way. And uh, that is literally a PC built around the Xbox Series X APU. And that was only made possible because our supporters were tracking that hardware saw that it was available in China, um, recognized that the specs were good enough to make good content out of it, unlike the 4700S. Uh, and yeah, this was a really uh, fascinating example of another really positive uh, interaction with our supporters. It's actually all feeding back into making Digital Foundry as a whole a lot better. 
And yeah, we, you know, we're on our Discord all the time. You know, we're speaking with supporters, engaging there. It's, it's really, really fun. Um, but that's it for this week. Uh, and yeah, DF Direct Weekly will be back next week. Thanks for watching. <laughs>